Hear Weill Cornell Medicine's physicians and healthcare providers. Check out the entire podcast library at weillcornell.org slash podcasts. Welcome to Weill Cornell Medicine CancerCast, conversations about new developments in medicine, cancer care, and research. I'm your host, Dr. John Leonard, and today we will be discussing fertility preservation in people with cancer. My guest today is Dr. Jennifer Levine, a board-certified pediatric hematologist-oncologist at Weill Cornell Medicine and New York Presbyterian Hospital. She specializes in the treatment of children and adolescents with leukemia. Dr. Levine also directs the team that provides long-term follow-up care for survivors of childhood and adolescent cancers. She has a special interest in the effects of chemotherapy on fertility, with a research focus on identifying patients most at risk for impaired fertility so that they can be offered fertility-preserving approaches as part of their care. So, Jen, thank you for joining us today. Um, This is such an important topic. Um, We deal with patients all the time and dealing with uh, a new diagnosis of cancer, and they have to focus on trying to get cured, trying to have a good outcome. Uh, And as part of it, um, really one major aspect uh, of this is to make sure in certain age groups for certain people um, dealing with fertility preservation based on the age of diagnosis. So um, obviously, this is an issue for many different ages, many different patients, both males and females. But I think what we'll focus on today a little bit more is the adolescent young adult population. So maybe if you could just kind of describe who is an adolescent. It's not necessarily intuitive to everybody who's an adolescent young adult, um, and, and there are clear definitions there. And then basically, um, maybe just a second or two on the broad needs or special considerations in this population before we get more specifically to fertility. Sure. So there are a couple of different ways to think about adolescents and young adults. Um, one way is just by age. So being 15 to 39, um, when you're diagnosed with a particular cancer. Um, another way which becomes important in the area of fertility preservation is whether or not somebody's gone through puberty because that impacts what we're able to do for them. Um, and these patients in general are really considered to be different than um, other patients who have been diagnosed with cancer. So pediatric patients are really children and their parents are really driving a lot of their decision-making and their care. Um, And older adults are usually engaged in very different activities of life. So they may be retired, they may have already raised a family, um, and they're just facing very different issues. But adolescents and young adults are really coping with a very different developmental stage. They're thinking about who they want to be, what their job is going to be, um, who they will marry or be a partner with, um, or who they currently are and what a family might look like. And those issues are just so different than either of the other two groups that they really kind of require special care and thought. So you have the complexity of life, so to speak, in that area, the complexity of a cancer diagnosis, and then obviously planning for the future when this may be somebody who was figuring out how they're managing high school or who they're going to date or something like that, and now have to think about, well, what's going to happen you know, in five or 10 or 20 years. So obviously complicated and, and having someone with expertise in that area must be very helpful. Yeah, I think that um, those 
some of those areas really are so um, specific and they might be things that people don't think about asking about if they haven't become familiar with that age group and understanding what their concerns might be. So that kind of brings us to uh, the issue of potential infertility from, from cancer treatment. And all cancer therapies don't, uh, don't have a, a major impact. The idea that um, at a high level, and this is obviously very specific to the age of the person, the nature of the treatment, but for a patient diagnosed with cancer who is at least thinking about or certainly wants to have a family in the future, um, what are the kind of the high level broad categories of cancers or cancer treatments that would lead to infertility or potentially right. do that? So in terms of um, cancer diagnoses, primarily that's really limited to things where you might have some kind of a surgical intervention or radiation to organs that are related to fertility. Mm -hmm. So possibly testicular cancer or something that involves the uterus or specifically the ovaries. Mm -hmm. In most other instances, it's really the treatment itself. There's a class of medications called alkylating agents, and those are known and have been known for a long time to uh, impact fertility in both males and females. Um, they're used in a wide variety of uh, diagnoses, and so there may be a wide variety of individuals for whom that is an issue. For males more than females, there's a class of medications called platins that can affect their fertility in the long term. And Radiation therapy that involves the reproductive organs in either males or females is also going to affect their fertility. There is sometimes an impact of having radiation to the brain that can affect both males and females because um, it makes it harder for the body to respond to appropriate signals. But we do think of that a little bit differently, and some of the treatments are different. So it, it's um, in some ways an easier issue to address. So is a good rule of thumb for someone diagnosed with a cancer, again, of, I'll just say, childbearing potential or interest, that they really should have um, kind of a consultation with somebody who is expert in this area? Because I know certain, uh, you know, medical oncologists who treat the bulk of these patients, um, you know, the, the knowledge about what to do and, and what the concerns are and what the data are can be uneven. Some people are very expert in this and some may be less experienced because they don't deal as much with 18-year-olds, for example. Right. So I think it's always really useful to have somebody who specializes in a particular area because their depth of knowledge is, is going to be increased. Um, and I think when we talk about having fertility conversations, it's really not limited just to individuals who have a potential of not being fertile. I think it's also really important to have conversations with individuals who may still retain their fertility. So it's really important because people may be worried that that's one of the things that's mm -hmm. gonna affect them when in fact it's it's not. And that may be a really important fear to allay at the beginning. Um, for adolescents, it may also be really important in terms of how we talk to them about things like contraception during or after chemotherapy as well. Um, so I think these conversations are important across the board, regardless of what we think the ultimate outcomes are going to be for fertility. It's just a really important area that matters a lot um, to patients and survivors and their families. And um, I definitely think, particularly in the cases where we might be considering interventions, that somebody who has the specialty in that area can really provide and help navigate and think through decisions that made when a lot of other important 
factors are, are happening. And the oncologists and the rest of the treating team may also really be thinking so much about what the treatment strategy needs to be at that time that it can be really beneficial to separate those things out a little bit. Okay, so let's walk through uh, a young woman is diagnosed with a cancer. Um, what are the, the options? I mean, obviously there's going to be a complicated or there should be a complicated discussion around what the treatment's going to be, what the risks are of that. But let's, let's say for the sake of argument, it's a treatment that has some risk of infertility associated with it. What, um, what's kind of the process that you would recommend and what are some of the options that might be available for such a young woman in a general sense? Right. So, Really, you know, I think the first thing is exploring where that person is, what their current family looks like, what some of their goals are. And if their decision is that they want to preserve their fertility, there are really, um, I'd say, three main interventions that would be considered, um, all of which involve um, freezing uh, for the future. So you can freeze embryos, you can freeze eggs, which means they're not yet fertilized, but um, they would be fertilized at a later point in time. Um, those are both considered sort of standard of care uh, options because they're used in the general population for other individuals who have issues related to infertility. Um, and then an option that is considered more experimental because it's newer, we have less experience with it, is actually freezing part of the ovary itself. And the way that that is used is by putting it back into someone's body later on. Um, so there is some experience with that, but it's it's less common overall. And and so I guess what would inform a woman's decision beyond their personal preferences? It's the therapy. It's the presence of a partner. Um, are there other factors that might figure, uh, obviously the age is going to affect the risk of infertility after some treatments, other things that would, would influence that? So I think some of the choices, uh, so some related to treatment are, are how sick someone is at the time. So, uh, that translates into how quickly one might want to start treatment because both embryo and oocyte or egg freezing require that you stimulate the ovaries. And that takes at least a couple of weeks. And so you have to be able to have a couple of weeks to not start treatment yet to be able to think about that. Ovarian tissue cryopreservation is really a surgical procedure. It can be done at the same time as other procedures. And so that doesn't require any um, delay in, in treatment. And then that's probably um, the, the biggest difference between two of those, with the exception of the, you know, the two being standard care and, and one being experimental. Um, in terms of considering embryo versus oocyte, um, some of that has to do with whether you have uh, a partner, uh, whether one is um, interested in using that partner's sperm or using donor sperm. Um, some individuals, and, and I think the more we get into this entire field, we actually do really have to think about things like what happens if you freeze embryos and you are no longer with that partner later on, or things have changed or your thoughts have changed, how much control do, do you want to have over what you have frozen? And so in some instances, women will freeze both embryos uh, and eggs to be able to have some um, ability to, to control that. From a technology perspective, um, 
neither one is 100% a guarantee that you can use them to have a child in the future. Um, there is more experience with embryo freezing, so, um, but oocyte freezing is really catching up in terms of uh, the ability to use that tissue. In general, someone who has leukemia is probably not a good candidate for ovarian tissue freezing in the beginning because we would be concerned that leukemia might be in that, that ovarian tissue and you wouldn't want to re-implant it. Um, unfortunately, leukemia patients often have more of a need to start therapy earlier also. So, you know, I think all of those things come into play. And you mentioned age, which is very important because for women... Being 19 is very different than being 35. So if you're 35 and you really think that you want to have more children, you're sort of already closer to menopause in general, and that would increase the need to really think about preserving something because after therapy, you really might not have much of a reproductive window. But a 19-year-old probably has some more flexibility. So uh, part of these discussions obviously must come into what are the chances? What are the chances are, am, am I not going to be able to have a child if I want to? What are the chances that this technology or manipulation or whatever is chosen is going to work? Is there a range from certain scenarios, something is, and, and I get that this is very specific, but, you know, are there certain things where you can say, yeah, this will probably work 80 or 90% of the time, and this will probably only work 10 or 20% of the time, but it's the best we have. So let's try it or maybe not try it because that may not be worth it. I mean, how, how do those things kind of play out? So I think, um, A, it's like the million dollar question right. um, because that's what everybody wants to know, including physicians. Mm -hmm. You know, how can we help make these decisions? And I think this is an area where males and females are very different um, because for males, the standard of care, so we haven't talked so much about them, is really to sperm bank, which doesn't take very much time. It doesn't require any interventions prior to doing it. Uh, it, it does cost some money, but not a ton of money. Um, there's, there's probably almost no scenario where I wouldn't recommend that a male sperm banks before starting therapy. There are not very many downsides to doing it if uh, from a health perspective and a financial perspective, it's otherwise okay to move forward with mm -hmm. that. So I think that's kind of important because mm -hmm. I think male in this instance, really, your gender matters a whole lot. Mm -hmm. For females, um, we are able to make some categorizations in terms of sort of low, intermediate, and high risk. Um, so high-risk patients who are going to get radiation directly to their ovaries uh, or uterus, primarily their ovaries. Um, or those who are really going to get high-dose alkylating agents. Procarbazine is a medication in particular we worry about, but we don't use so much anymore. Um, so I think that we are able to put um, people into these uh, low, medium, and high-risk categories. And in the end, every intervention probably comes with about a 30 to 40 percent rate of success from it, much higher for sperm banking than for the female option. Mm -hmm. Okay. And um, I guess the other question um, is what uh, that, that you didn't mention is hormonal uh, uh, treatment or hormonal manipulations short of a collection in, in women uh, of eggs or, or, uh, or, or embryos, ultimately. Um, 
I know we've talked about this. Yeah. Is this something because it's easier to do, obviously, in yeah. many ways. Is that something that we know more about? So uh, so I think what you're referring to is this category of medications called uh, broadly gonadotropin releasing hormone. Mm -hmm. Lupron is a common mm -hmm. example. Um, the idea of using these medications, it's an injection. They're mm -hmm. given usually about monthly. And the, there's some idea that there you can have um, sort of shutting down the ovaries so that you maintain function. Mm -hmm. And this is unfortunately an area where there's not a lot of great definitive data to help uh, answers with the exception of patients who have been diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, and there are um, some downsides to the medication in terms of potentially causing uh, menopausal symptoms, which can be disruptive or uh, unpleasant to a patient. So I it's an area that I, we've been very interested in studying more, um, both because you'd want to do it for everybody if we found it to be helpful, and you would really not want to be doing it if we found it to be something that was just added on that offered no benefit. So I'm very hopeful that in the near future, this is something we're really going to be um, studying. But it's definitely an area where I'd say from individual oncologists to institutions to larger groups um, like the American Society for Clinical Oncology, where there's re there really aren't clear guidelines about, about what should be done. So what are, what are the main areas of research? They definitely uh, break down into a number of different categories. So one is um, related to the risk for becoming infertile or trying to estimate how long a period of time a woman might have, for example, of being able to have a child post-treatment because we're really not so great at estimating that now. So trying to understand are there things we can check at diagnosis, are there things in the you know bloodstream or ultrasounds that we could say to somebody with somewhat more certainty, this is what we think your risk actually is, or this is the amount of time we think you have post-treatment to mm -hmm. be able to have have a family. Um, and then on the technology side, there are a lot of um, really interesting kinds of things happening. So there's there's obviously the fine-tuning of embryo and egg freezing, and that is, again, something that's applicable, like you mentioned, to the general population. So, you know, we talk about these 35 to 40 percent numbers or those static numbers. Have we reached a ceiling or could you really improve those percentages through technology? And then in, in some way for cancer patients, um, I think the holy grail is, is kind of being able to create um, some way of maturing eggs outside of the body or creating um, an external ovary, uh, for example. And so that would really change how we would be able to treat uh, ovarian tissue that was removed from the body. It would it would remove the issue of whether or not somebody had uh, leukemia. It would give uh, physicians much greater control over um, how to take eggs and make them into embryos and then be able to implant them. And I think all of those areas really are, are necessary for us to to move forward. What about cost of all of this? I'm, I'm, my my sense is that the technologies even outside of the cancer fertility preservation area uh, are costly. And certainly when you think about, you know, young people, 18 year olds tend not to have, you know, $100,000 sitting around to cover their medical expenses, et cetera. 
how do how how much does all of this cost? Does insurance cover it? Where can people go uh, if they're in a situation where they don't have the resources to 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 manage this? And I that's overall insurance really doesn't cover these uh, procedures at the moment. There it, that is changing a little bit. For males, uh, the procedure is much less expensive. It's probably about five to seven hundred dollars the first year of then that includes analyzing a semen analysis to to really understand uh, whether the sperm that's going to be stored is going to be viable later, um, and then actually storing it for a year. And then following it that first year, you know, again, probably about two hundred and fifty to three hundred dollars a year just for the storage. And that can vary you know, depending on when somebody makes a decision to, to use it. All of the other procedures for females probably cost somewhere between ten dollars and $15,000. So it's really quite expensive. And that's a combination um, of medications that may need to be used and then surgical procedures. Um, and of course, all of these costs exclude needing to use reproductive technologies later to actually become pregnant. Um, so... There are a number of ways that that cost can be mitigated somewhat. So there are organizations that work to provide free medications uh, like uh, LiveStrong. Um, there are some other specific for uh, breast cancer. And they also negotiate rates with various reproductive endocrinologists or sperm banks so that um, people who are facing a cancer diagnosis can get discounted rates. So that can definitely help. Um, and there is an effort underway to improve insurance coverage. So currently, uh, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Maryland, Delaware, and Illinois have all passed legislation um, that uh, some are combined with fertility treatments in the general population. Some are have uh, aspects that are more specific to cancer. Um, they all relate essentially to private insurance, so they don't nothing that's publicly funded is is affected by this at this point. And there are a number of other states that have um, resolutions or bills that are actually under consideration. So I think we're hopeful that in the next decade or so that that landscape is going to change. But um, at the moment, finances really end up being a concern for patients. I want to move now to kind of the other side. So let's pretend that we're in a scenario where we have a patient who's been through treatment, they've gone through uh, fertility preservation of one sort or another, um, they're now in remission, hopefully cured. They want to now have a, uh, with their partner, let's say, uh, a family. What do you tell patients about how long to wait? What do you tell patients about the risk of the baby, if if it's naturally um, uh, natural pregnancy, is the baby more likely to have problems? Uh, is the baby likely to have problems if it comes from assisted technology of some sort or another? Um, what's your general advice to approaching that scenario once patients are ready now to move on to another phase? Right. So I think that the first part of that is the when, um, and that definitely is a discussion. I mean, there, there are two uh, issues, I think, that maybe more than two issues that are related to that. So one is the issue of relapse, which in a sense is a personal decision for somebody. Um, but I think that it is necessary to have a conversation related to how would you feel or what would life be like if you um, 
you, as a female became pregnant or sired a pregnancy and uh, there was a recurrence of the cancer, that that's something to be considered. The longer, obviously, you wait, the less likely that that is as a possibility. Um, I'm not sure what the right answer for that is, and I think it really is a personal decision for individuals. Um, then the, the possibility of when can you become pregnant um, also to some degree depends on what um, treatments you've had. So most males will be temporarily infertile after the completion of therapy, regardless of whether they will go on to be permanently infertile. And that's just because most chemotherapy affects making sperm in the short term. And so it is possible that for a year or maybe even longer, um, it's not possible to sire a pregnancy and that somebody would have to wait. One way to ascertain that is by doing a semen analysis. Um, for women, it's the same thing. So women's periods may stop during treatment and it you know, can take up to a year or longer for those periods to resume. And in that time period, they just may not be able to get um, pregnant. So, um, and then... Once you get to a point where you think, okay, well, this is a reasonable thing to, to choose, most of the time, unless we have clear evidence that somebody is now infertile, I think we always recommend, you know, attempting natural conception. It's definitely a lot cheaper. Um, and then if that's, you know, we, we tell them, you know, you're not going to wait a year like some people might if they hadn't had cancer, but, you know, see what, see what happens and then move on to considering assisted reproduction. The data that we have available really suggests that children born to childhood or adolescent or young adult cancer survivors are no different from other children. They remain at risk for some you know, issues that, again, in the general public you could have, but there's no real increased risk for any differences or an increased risk for having cancer. And you know, whether those children are born by natural conception or assisted techniques, there's really no evidence that that also is any different if you're a cancer survivor than what you might have in the general population. And there are clearly patients who are not able for whatever circumstances to avail themselves of fertility preservation, whether it's timing, whether it's knowledge, whether it's financial resources. Anything special you would tell someone who uh, you know has been through cancer therapy doesn't have these options from before uh, kind of uh, lined up um, now they want to either father a child or or uh, become pregnant um, anything special that you would say to them I, I presume you would say, well gee, you're probably at greater risk of infertility perhaps so again don't wait for years trying naturally before seeking help, anything else uh, that generally people either can do after the fact, so to speak, um, uh, yeah. your thoughts on that? So I think for males, um, we talk about doing a semen analysis and just mm -hmm. trying to understand, you know, where, where things are. There's not much post-treatment that males can do um, to prevent or augment their fertility, but they're, um, is the possibility of having a urologist actually extract um, sperm if there is no sperm in like an ejaculate that could be used for assisted reproduction like IVF. So at the time that they desire a pregnancy, even if they appear to be infertile, that there might be that option. 
for women, um, I do talk about fertility preservation in the survivorship period. So if they haven't done anything before, they're not ready to have children, but they seem like they still have fertile potential at the moment or good ovarian reserve, but we don't know how long that's going to last, they can still consider freezing eggs or embryos. And in a way, it's it's almost it's easier sometimes. They're not as pressured as they might be at a diagnosis, but I think it's still really important to consider that. So if you're 19 years old and you got treatment where we think, you know, by 25 or 26, you really could be infertile and you're telling me you're going to get, you know, a PhD in something, then this might be a really good time to freeze some eggs. And then, you know, that might give you some more options later on. And then one other question that comes up a lot is, what is the cancer going to come back if I get pregnant? Uh, or what are the risks to the mother if the mother is the patient of getting pregnant uh, after cancer therapy? Are there any particular rules of thumb that you give in, in that regard or just say go to it as long as you want to go ahead? Well, I think the answer to that is definitely different depending on the type of cancer and at least what our experience is, is how in how long we think that there's a likelihood for a relapse to occur. Um, there are obviously many women who go on to be uh, mothers after, you know, after treatment. And again, some of it, I think, is a ends up being a personal decision. I think the most important thing is... Um, is to just really have an honest discussion about what the possibilities are and what is somebody's comfort level in terms of, you know, whether this could occur. But if you're beyond the time period where your oncologist is telling you that, you know, there's a risk for recurrence, then I think, you know, that's a time where you should really feel comfortable going ahead and making plans for these future events. What what advice do you have as far as talking about this? I can see that this could be for a couple that's, let's say, newly married, maybe, I mean, it's obviously a big deal in any scenario in the context of cancer, but that's probably a different and in some ways easier conversation than talking to a 14-year-old about this or a single person or having parents involved in these discussions. What what sorts of rules of thumb or suggestions do you give? I can imagine that some people might be uh, you know, I don't want to say bashful, but hesitant to talk about these things. Also, religious uh, preferences might enter it as well. Yeah. Any thoughts on that? I mean, I think it goes back to one of your initial questions, which is about someone who sort of specializes in this area, because um, I think it is, I think it's important, there are important conversations to have. And so part of talking about it is helping people talk about it if they're uncomfortable with the subject matter. Um, for the younger patients, the idea of having a family may be so far from what they're thinking about that you also really need to be prepared to say, you know, I hear that you're telling me you don't want to talk about this and this doesn't matter to you, but it might matter to you later. And so we really should pay attention uh, to this. Um and I think that there is an aspect when you're dealing with a couple of trying to mitigate their relationship with one another, that they need to be able to handle this as a as a couple. So, so to wrap up, I, I think um, what would probably be a good way to end is just kind of your advice, your most high level advice to either a family or a patient dealing with this. On the front end, meaning, uh, you know, I just got a cancer diagnosis and and how do I fit this into my priorities of all the things going on. And then again, on the back end of 
um, how do I get help and, and support for these sorts of uh, issues? Yeah. I mean, I think the most important message is just that you should be discussing this and you should be discussing it at diagnosis. You probably should have a conversation during treatment to just think about what's coming next and uh, to talk about it in survivorship because if it's not, and if, you're, if your healthcare team isn't raising the issue with you, you should raise the issue um, because that's how you're going to get the information. And that doesn't mean that you're going to have some kind of an intervention or, or make a choice, but it means that you've you know, really thought through what the possibilities are and considered what you're, what's important to you. And having a team that that is expert in this seems to be extremely important. I'm, I, I it strikes me that somebody kind of uh, being treated by a solo practitioner somewhere, um, obviously that's complicated in cancer therapy. Sometimes that's the reality of where people are and what they have available to them. But this is really one area where you need to have a team with experience and and kind of sensitivity to these issues and and options to offer is an essential thing. Yeah, I think there's no doubt that fertility preservation happens when there's a team available to make this happen. I mean, part of it is the talking, part of it is navigating the system, part of it is assisting with finances. And, you know, that is is something that I think really does require that the infrastructure's in place, people have thought about this, they know how to do it, and it's, you know, something that can happen smoothly and doesn't really disrupt moving on to all the things that you need to do in the context of treating your cancer. Well, thank you. This has been a really great discussion, and I think there are lots of pearls in there for uh, patients and their families, and and I think also uh, a message of hope for many people that despite facing a cancer diagnosis, and thinking that uh, you know they uh, have such a big challenge ahead of them that ultimately many people go on and uh, ultimately uh, confront and deal with uh, some of the happier things that come along later, maybe a little more complicated than than the average person in some ways, but nonetheless, uh, these issues can can take uh, on a great importance and and bring people back to kind of the mainstream of of uh, what uh, people commonly deal with. And, and having a family is obviously important to many people. So it's great to be able to offer that. So I want to invite the audience to download, subscribe, rate, and review CancerCast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, or online at wildcornell.org. We also encourage you to write to us at cancercast at med.cornell.edu with questions, comments, and topics you'd like us to see covering in more depth in the future. That's it for CancerCast, conversations about new developments in medicine, cancer care, and research. I'm Dr. John Leonard. Thanks for tuning in. If you or a loved one is undergoing cancer treatment, rehabilitation medicine can help with recovery and ease painful side effects. Listen to Back to Health, Wild Cornell Medicine's podcast series dedicated to rehabilitative medicine. To learn more about the ways psychiatrists can help. All information contained in this podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes. The information is not intended nor suited to be a replacement or substitute for professional medical treatment or for professional medical advice relative to a specific medical question or condition. We urge you to always seek the advice of your physician or medical professional with respect to your medical condition or questions. While Cornell Medicine makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast, and any reliance on such information is done at your own risk. Participants may have consulting, equity, 
board membership, or other relationships with pharmaceutical, biotech, or device companies unrelated to their role in this podcast. No payments have been made by any company to endorse any treatments, devices, or procedures. And while Cornell Medicine does not endorse, approve, or recommend any product, service, or entity mentioned in this podcast, opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speaker and do not represent the perspectives of Weill Cornell Medicine as an institution.